we are at a year of this, if you can believe it or not. It was it was a year ago next week that we had our, our last in-person service. And if a year ago, if you had told me that we'd still be doing this, I, I don't know how I would have responded. It wouldn't have been great, though. So it's probably good that we didn't know going into this that it was going to last this long. But hopefully we're coming to the tail end of it. Uh, we're keeping an eye on hospitalization rates and immunizations. And hopefully we're we're much, much closer to the end of this than, than we are to the beginning. So um, anyway, it's great to be with you. Hope everybody's healthy. Hope everybody's safe. And I think that's all I got on the announcements. Now I know that you can hear me. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to the book of John chapter 2. And we're going to get a, take a look at that in a second. But before we look at John chapter 2, I got to tell you about the temple. Um, I realize we're just jumping right into this. I have no like funny introduction story. I have no anecdotes about my kids. I just want to tell you about the temple in Jerusalem. So in Jesus' day, in the first century, the most important place in the city of Jerusalem was the temple. And I have a picture here because that's the kind of thing I can do with our technology. So um, this, is, this isn't an, a picture of the actual temple. The actual temple was destroyed. We'll get to that in a second. This is a model of the temple in Jerusalem. But this is what it would have looked like in Jesus' day, give or take some, some ornaments and some statues and whatnot. So the temple in the city of Jerusalem was the central location. This was believed to be where God dwelled among the people. And the temple actually had a really history, a really long history to it. So again, the belief was they, they build the temple and the reason you build the temple or the reason the temple was built was because the people believed that this is where God would dwell amongst us. If you wanted to be near the place where the divine was, you would go to the temple. So that the temple was, was seen as not just sacred. It wasn't just like a church building on a street corner. This was the center of everything. In every year, there would be certain festivals and holidays and sacrificial seasons when people would travel from very, very far away just to go to the temple. The temple was the center of life. It was the center of identity. It was the center of everything if you were a part of this culture. But again, like I mentioned before, th this wasn't the first temple. This was actually uh, what was referred to as the second temple because the first one had been destroyed in the year 586 BCE by the Babylonian Empire. At the beginning of the Babylonian exile, the Babylonian Empire comes in after the first temple, what was referred to as Solomon's temple, had been destroyed, or they, they destroyed it, and then they carried everybody off into exile. And so about 70 years later, the people are allowed to return from exile. And one of the first things that they do is they begin to rebuild the temple. And if you're interested in that whole history, you can take a look. There's a book called Nehemiah. There's another book called Ezra. And that kind of um, chronicles kind of the rebuilding of everything that had been destroyed at the beginning of the Babylonian exile. So the first temple is destroyed. They come back and they start to rebuild the temple. Because if you're going to rebuild your society, if you're going to try and reclaim your identity, you have to rebuild the temple. So about 200 years after the temple is rebuilt, the Greeks invade Jerusalem. And when the Greeks invade Jerusalem, one of the things that they do is they go into the temple and they begin to add their own items of worship, their own objects of, of worship. So they begin to add statues and shrines to their own gods in the temple. And there are groups of people who see this and obviously not super happy about it. Because the belief is that the temple is where the God of the people of Israel dwells. And so if you begin to taint it with images of other gods, then it becomes less and less sacred. So there, there is a group of people 
who begin to feel like once once a, an idol to another god has been erected in the temple, this temple is no longer what it once was. Even though we rebuilt, we rebuilt the whole thing, and now the Greeks have the audacity to come in and put their own gods in the temple. So not long after that, in the year 63 BCE, the Roman Empire then comes in and conquers Jerusalem. And in addition to the Greek gods that have been put up in there, now the Romans begin to put their own versions of their gods in the temple. So now you've got Greek gods and you've got Roman gods all represented in this temple area that was once believed to be sacred. And so they, all these groups of people begin to come in and take over and they have the power. And so they begin to add their own gods to the temple. So by the way, one of the people who's instrumental in keeping the people in line in Jerusalem is a guy named Herod the Great. I'm assuming he gave himself that name or the nickname, the Great. So he, Herod the Great is appointed by Rome to oversee the Judean territory. And the thing about Herod the Great is he really wants people to love him. And he realizes that people don't love him because he's been here representing Rome. He's killed a lot of people at the request of the Roman Empire. So Herod's trying to figure out how do I, how do I win back the people's love? And he decides, well, one of the, the things that the people love the most is the temple. So what I'll do is I will take my vast resources. And it's, it's widely believed that Herod the Great was the richest man in the world at this time because of all the different societies and groups of people that he had plundered and pillaged and stolen from and all the money he had taken from people like Caesar to do those kinds of things. So the belief was that Herod the Great was possibly the richest man in the world at this point. So Herod takes so much of his vast resources and he begins to decorate and we'll say renovate and in his in his mind improve the temple by plating it with gold he begins to add new structures and new new images to the temple and he believes people are going to love me for this you're going to be amazed to learn that people did not necessarily love him for this because they believed that Herod was an emissary of Rome and they believed that Herod's money was blood money and not only that not not just blood money from anywhere blood money from having killed their friends and relatives in in a recent rebellion so people weren't thrilled to see Herod begin to pour his own resources into the temple. So what you have is you have this structure that was believed to be sacred because of where it had come from, but then because of the Greeks and because of the Romans and then because of Herod, the belief was it's no longer sacred. So they're actually, at this point, by the time Jesus shows up, nobody is neutral on the temple. Everybody has a strong opinion about whether or not the temple is sacred. In fact, there was a group of people known as the Essenes during the time of Jesus who, who's basically made this proclamation of the temple is as profane and as blood-soaked as any other structure in under the Roman Empire at this point. So what the Essenes did was they decided we're just going to leave. We're going to get out of town. We're going to create our own religious structure. This is where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from. And so the Essenes begin to proclaim that the temple isn't sacred anymore. The temple isn't what, what it used to be. So the belief is that the temple, the entire temple area which was once supposed to be the place where God dwelled, is no longer the place where God dwells. This place is no longer what it once was. So again, by the time Jesus shows up, everybody has, a, has an opinion on the temple. And again, I told you what the Essenes' opinion is, but there's still some people who think that all this stuff is fine. As long as the temple stands, the, the, the other belief was, as long as one stone stands on top of another in the temple area, then God is still with us. Which is why, by the way, and we've talked about this before, Later on in the year 70, the Roman general Titus will come in to try and quash a rebellion. And one of the orders that Titus gives his soldiers is make sure no stone in the temple stands on top of the other. 
why is that Titus' order? Because Titus knows that the belief in the people's minds is as long as one stone stands on top of another in the temple area, then God is still with us. So what Titus is trying to do is he's trying to break the spirits of the people. And he very specifically says, make sure no stone stands on top of another. So there's one group of people who believe the temple is profane, the temple is, is, has, has lost whatever divine presence it had. And there's another group of people who says, no, the temple's fine. There's, the stones are still standing on top of another. Everything is fine. So we have to understand this in order to understand what we're about to see in John chapter 2. So in John chapter 2, Jesus does this thing that you see, and this kind of gets cited and used in a lot of different ways, and we'll sort of talk about those ways in a second. Um, but th this is a scene you're probably familiar with. This is the one scene where Jesus gets um, like physical <laughs> with, with anybody. In, in any sort of aggressive sort of way. So th this, is, this is what it says in John chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 13. So in John chapter 2, verse 13, it says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, which was, which was the sacred, like one of the most sacred festivals of this time, when people would come from all over the world to, to celebrate and worship in the temple and to make sacrifices in the temple. It says, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves. Now, it may not seem like it, but the doves are going to be important in a second. So it says, um, he came and found, and found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at table exchanging money. So he, Jesus, made a whip out of cords, as you do, and drove all from, and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves... Now, he specifically was out of his way to talk to the people who were selling the doves. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. He, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. So now he's, they're calling back on this ancient story of when they came back from Babylon and took 46 years to rebuild this sacred space. And it says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he, he said and they had believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. By the way, it's probably not insignificant that the book of John is the, was probably the latest of the gospel stories that was written, which means that it, it is very probable that this story is written and circulated after the year 70 when Titus has already destroyed the temple. So if you begin circulating a story about someone coming into the temple and doing this and saying, destroy the temple and I'll raise it in three days, there's going to be a certain population of the people reading the story who hear Jesus say, destroy the temple and I'll raise it again in three days, who have a visceral, like, emotional response to that because they remember when Titus destroyed the temple. You know what I mean? So all this is going on and Jesus comes in and he says, destroy the temple after he turns over everything and makes a whip because um, I don't know who teaches you how to make a whip, but Jesus makes a whip and he turns over these tables and he says this thing about destroy the temple and I'll raise it again in three days. What is he doing here? What is he, what is he trying to say? So uh, jump back over, if you will, to Leviticus chapter five. Um, in ancient Jewish tradition, 
there were all kinds of rules and expectations for sacrifices, specifically sacrifices that were made during the season of Passover. So, and that what, what we what we know at the beginning of the story is it's the beginning of Passover. Jesus goes in. There are people selling cattle and sheep and doves, and Jesus has very harsh words for the people specifically who were selling the doves, and. So we know that there's all sorts of rules and expectations for people who are coming into the temple area about what kinds of sacrifices they're supposed to make. And the kind of sacrifice that you can make quite often has to do with your economic standing and what you can afford. And so in Leviticus chapter 5, you begin to sort of see kind of it laid out what some of the sacrificial expectations were. So in Leviticus 5 verse 6, it says, As a penalty for the sin they have committed... They, the people, must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement. Um, I'm sorry, shall make atonement for them for their sin. And then in verse seven, this is important. It says, "Anyone who cannot afford a lamb is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord as a penalty for their sin, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering." So, what does it say? So, what do we know about anybody who needs to have doves? at the sacrificial ceremony. It means they couldn't afford anything else. Doves are the final option for people who have nothing left, who have nothing that they can bring to afford. So why would people be buying? So if you go into the temple courts at, at Passover and you see people selling these items, why would people be buying these items? Because they believe that they were removed from a God or from their God in some way and they needed to atone for that removal. And so specifically, the people selling the doves are are specifically preying on people who would have been the poorest among the crowd, the people who were probably the most desperate at this time. And by the way, at this time, we've talked a lot about this before, poverty in this part of the world at this time was out of control. The Roman Empire had come in and begun to tax people, sometimes up to 90% of their household income. And so probably a lot of the people are showing up looking for the doves. And if you've got people who are price gouging the doves, that becomes especially offensive in this part of the at this time and in this place. And so there are people in the temple area using the temple space to get rich off of the desperation of the poorest of the people in their midst. And Jesus is having a very strong reaction against this exact thing. I've um, I was I was just having a conversation yesterday about this. I, I've heard people take this scene and kind of associate it with the act, this act with Jesus reacting to anybody doing any kind of business inside of any church building. So like setting up a coffee shop in the lobby of a church, I've, I've heard people use that as sort of like a, a, a comparison to what we see going on here. It, it's really, I think it's really hard for us in the Western world where there are churches on every corner to imagine a world where there is one central location where you believe that God is. And this is not like somebody sets up a coffee shop or a bookstore or like some, some sort of like kiosk in a lobby. That's not what this is. This isn't just somebody um, offering, offering some sort of like exchange in, in, a, in a lobby. This is, this is something a lot more sinister and a lot darker than that. This is a group of people using their access, specifically using their access, their resources and their power to have space in the temple and to exploit other people's desire to connect with God. This is people saying, if you don't give me your resources, if you don't buy these things from me right now, then, then God will not hear your prayers. So apparently, 
A long time ago, it was possible for people who claimed to represent and serve God to abuse their power and to exploit the people that they were supposed to serve. So what we're talking about here is we're talking about religious abuse. We're talking about people who are using their access to the religious structure of their day to, to exploit people's desperation to be close to the God that they were trying to serve. So, um, over, and I, this is, this is one of those things, we see this a lot at, at Collective Church. That one, of the, one, of the things, one, of, one of the things that I hear from people about is people coming out of church systems, out of church um, structures, and, and saying, like, I was a part of this church, but then this leader was exposed. Or it turned out that this person was taking the money that was supposed to be used to go to like dig wells and they were using it to, um, to buy private property. That was actually, that, 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 was a, that was a story I heard a couple of years ago was, was that someone was saying like, we're gonna go build well or we're gonna go dig wells in Honduras or whatever. And they took that money and they ended up using that money to uh, self-publish a book on um, marriage or something. And uh, so you, you hear stories like this a lot of people taking people's desperation to be a part of something bigger than themselves, to connect with the, the divine, and then taking that and abusing it in a certain way. Um, a couple former heroes of mine recently over the last couple of years have been exposed for basically doing this, for taking the trust that people had given them and abusing it and hurting people in, in a way. There was, there was one guy who... Who's every book I read of his, every um, every time he would speak at a conference, I would try and show up. It turned out he was sexually harassing um, volunteers and employees under his care. He was um, taking his power and he was using it to, to harm people. There was another guy who I loved, who I absolutely, uh, whose, whose work meant so much to me. I mean, I, I, I would go so far as to say, like, I, I learned to preach partially from watching this guy. It turned out he was um, covering up some pretty, I don't how how to say this. Um, he was it turned it turned out he was covering up for his adult son, who um, had been committing some pretty heinous abuse in their church, and he'd been covering it up against kids. So there there are these there are these people, and. And they, they gain our trust. And I say this as somebody who is a church leader and who gratefully has gained the trust of people. And, and when you see somebody who has gained the trust of a group of people who, who expect you to be someone who represents the God that they are trying to connect with, and then you find, you find out that not only was this person not who you thought that they were, they were, they were actually doing lots of harm. And they were using their their power and their access and other people's desire to connect with God as as a way to sort of give themselves license to do that kind of harm. It there is a certain kind of betrayal. There there is there there is really nothing like that feeling of betrayal. So what is Jesus's point here? Why does Jesus go in and flip these tables? And why does he have such harsh words specifically for the people selling the doves? Well, it's because he, Jesus, when, when you say to yourself, I can't stand it when religious leaders abuse their power, I think this is Jesus's way of saying, I couldn't agree with you more. That is, 
I think that is exactly what Jesus is getting at. So what is his ultimate point, though? There must be something larger to this. What is Specifically, look at what he says, because he, he does the thing which makes sense to us, which, which is to go in and say, you're abusing the space. But then he goes so far as to say something a lot weirder about destroying the temple. What is he saying here? Look at verse uh, 18 again. In verse 18, it says, The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered him, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days, which is bananas. What is he even trying to say here? And, and in verse 20, it says, they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it again in three days. But the temple he spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So what is Jesus ultimately pointing here? I mean, at one level, he's calling out the, the abuse that is going on in the temple. But at another level, he's taking this as an opportunity to make a larger point about what exactly he's doing here. So the point here is not simply to make a scene. The point here is to communicate something about what the temple is ultimately for, which is what? The point of the temple is to bring the divine closer to humanity. The whole point of the temple is to say to people, God is in your midst. And to, to basically to break down whatever barriers have been built in, in the minds of people who believe that we have to go through these, we, we have to pass through all these, um, basically like these velvet ropes, or we have to go through like all these gatekeepers in order to access the divine. And I think... What Jesus is trying to say here is like, well, look, we're not trying to create barriers. We're not, we're not trying to make people feel less adequate or more unwanted. What we're trying to do here is we're trying to say, no, God is in your midst. God, God, is, God is with you even when you aren't aware of it. And so Jesus is saying the temple, the temple isn't the temple. The, the temple, Jesus is saying wherever I am, that's where the temple is. That, that is where the divine is in your midst. But then if you jump forward a couple of chapters, Jesus begins to elaborate on what it means to see Jesus in your midst. So in uh, John chapter 13, verse 34, it says, um, if I can find it, okay, Jesus is speaking. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How will we know when Jesus is in our midst? When the people who follow Jesus express love to one another and to others. So Jesus strips it all down to this. If it doesn't look like love and grace, then maybe maybe there's something absent there. If it doesn't look like love, then maybe that's a table that needs to be flipped over. It's easy. And the thing is, I, I can read the story and I can talk about like these people who have let me down, who have, who have frustrated me and who have disappointed me. It's easy to feel self-righteous about this. It's easy to read the story and to see the tables as being as belonging to somebody else, as being somebody else's problem. But when we read the story, it it's again, it's easy to stand, stand off to the side and cheer Jesus on and say, yeah, you tell him. But, but maybe the real question that the story invites us to ask is, if Jesus were to step into our space or to log onto our live stream, as it were, what tables might Jesus be tempted to flip? In what space, in, in what ways do we lack love? In what ways are we putting up barriers for people? That is always the question. This, is, this has been the driving question of, of our church from the first day. In what ways do people feel alienated? In what ways do people feel unwanted? In what ways do people feel inadequate? And how do we, how do, how do we flip those tables over? And 
we still, seven years in, I'm sure we still have a lot of work to do. We still have a lot to learn. The driving question for me as a pastor is, is there, are there any tables here that need to be flipped over? Are there any ways that we've set up gateways and barriers? Are there any ways that we lack love? Are there any ways that we could be just a little bit more gracious to people who need grace? What does that look like? And we could carry that individually. If, if, if what Jesus says here is, it, it, if we're, if we're going to take that seriously, where, wherever I am, is, is where your love, wherever people see me is wherever you are showing love to one another. What does it look like for us to carry that with us and for us to take that seriously? Maybe, maybe the temple is wherever two people or is wherever two people are representing Jesus by showing love to others. Maybe that's where the temple is. And so that's the question. The question is where the, what tables need to be flipped over? Where, where do I need to show more love? Where can I become more and more empowered to offer grace and peace to other people? In what ways have I been setting up barriers? In what ways am I making it harder? In what ways am I representing a God that Jesus would say, that is not the God I'm here to represent. I'm here to flip those tables over. So may we be the kinds of people who carry love with us. May we be the kinds of people who, um, who, who expect some tables to get flipped and may we do better when that happens. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this very strong image. We, we thank you for this reminder that we all have tables. And may we, may we find the places where we could do better to show love and grace. May we do, do our best to remove all the ways that we make people feel inadequate, all the ways that we are metaphorically selling doves to the poorest and the least among us. May we, may we find ways instead to, to open the doors wider and wider and to leave a seat for those who need it. Um, may we, for those of us who have made, been made to feel inadequate, may we understand that those are, those are tables that Jesus flips over, that that is not the kind of story that Jesus is trying to tell. For those of us who have been wounded by leaders who have, uh, who have abused our trust, who have, um, who have taken power, and um, distorted it to, the, to their own will, may we be set free from, from, those, uh, from those burdens. May we instead remember that this is a story about a God who says, you are welcome and you are loved. And may we participate in that kind of story. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.